G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Yes, well, the Lutheran Church has been working for the last 10 years on getting ready to celebrate the 500th anniversary. Uh, So Wittenberg itself is um, awash with uh, Reformation 500, uh, not only conferences, but uh, the, the whole of Wittenberg has been what should we say, it's been tarted up for, for the tourists. Uh, it's, it's quite incredible the amount of building work that was still going on. Uh, the, the actual program for the celebration starts on the 20th of May, so you can imagine what it's like with the, the last-minute building programs going on to get things up to shape for the uh, influx of tourists that they're expecting. Uh, it's quite a magnificent sight. It is a huge year. It is a huge celebration. And if I hit you with one of the biggest questions early on in our conversation, Graham, really when we're talking about something 500 years ago, we're talking pre-modern colonial Australian history. But is it a fair thing to say that Australia would not look like it does today had it not been for the Reformation back 500 years ago? Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> most of the most of the world uh, wouldn't look like it does today. America or Latin America, um, any of those places. Uh, if we didn't get the Protestant split from the Catholic Church in in 500 years ago, our worlds would be very different to what they are now. Now, we're going to talk about the Reformation, and because there's so much to say and so little time to squeeze it into, and but let's start with what the social setting was like in the time, in the lead-up to, and what was happening at the Reformation, because there are key identities involved in all of this, and of course uh, the central key identity, no doubt, will be Martin Luther, uh, but there were lots of other identities in the lead-up too. How do you describe that social setting around the time of the Reformation? Well, prior to um, 1517, uh, in the hundred years beforehand, uh, there had been a number of attempts to reform the Catholic Church frequently in its moral um, aspects rather than its theological. Um, and that process uh, often stalled. Um, my sense is that uh, during 15, the 1500s, the early 1500s, you had this perfect storm coming together um, of social and political, technological advances that all made it possible for what Martin Luther did in uh, 31st of October in 1517 to actually take off and have traction amongst the the general population. Um, so one of the one of the interesting things from my perspective is the technology. Uh, we're used to advances in technology every day these days, um, but in the 1500s there were some major advances in in printing in particular. Uh, that made it possible for Luther and others later on to exploit the printed media to get their message out in a way that wasn't possible beforehand. Um, economically, there was a, a real shift in the way that 
society was working. It was moving, moving out of an old feudal system into a much more um, pre-modern economic system. So banks were starting to, to play a, life, uh, a role in people's lives, not unlike today, I guess. Yeah. Um, there was political instability across um, the, the area of, of what's known as the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, this was a, a conglomerate of uh, you know, almost hundreds of little principalities and duchies and, and um, all sorts of places that were all controlled by the, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, but all wanting to become independent in their own right in some way. You had the uh, development of Spain, the development of France. They were at war with each other constantly. England's off to the side trying to become an important player in Europe. So it was a melting pot of things that were going on. Um, and into this sort of maelstrom steps, uh, this theologian uh, pastor um, who is in, in pretty much a little backwater town. It's a, a university town that had only just commenced as a university in 1502. A bit like one of our universities that doesn't have much of a heritage but would like to have a name and a place uh, in in the higher education sector, and uh, Luther's um, patron prince, uh, Frederick the Wise, as he becomes known, really wanted his university to be up there amongst all the leading universities of Europe, and became very supportive of, of Luther, even when he was uh, causing him problems. Um, we suspect it was partly to maintain this uh, status that he was wanting for his university. So there's a lot of things going on in that early 1500s period, the Roman Catholic Church had just come out of a fairly um, bitter um, dispute. At one stage, we had three popes, uh, all arguing that they were the right pope, and that was only resolved at the Council of Constance in 1417. Uh, so only 100 years before, the, the, the sense of the um, monopoly of the, the Catholic Church was being challenged, uh, even internally, by the way it was... Um, sort of fractured at that stage with what's known as the Great Schism. So lots of things going on, and, and Luther steps into that in Wittenberg and sort of puts the, the match to the, uh, the tinder pile that was there, and, and uh, away it goes, that wildfire. Interestingly, Graham, when we talk about the Reformation, there's always a, a temptation to see the inflammatory things that happened then and to assume that those are still the same today. Of course, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and uh, in all churches, there are no doubt going to be faults and there are going to be things that people will argue about. But uh, but those sorts of same uh, issues of corruption are not happening today in the way that they were back then because there were some significant corruption issues uh, that Martin Luther was uh, was was battling against when he nailed those theses to the door. What sort of issues were going on 500 years ago? You know, one, of, one of the major things that Luther um, became concerned about was the, the sale of what were known as indulgences. Now, the theology from the Catholic Church around indulgences in the 15, uh, 1500s was not as tight as it is today. Um, and some of the, um, the people that were the indulgent sellers um, made some extravagant claims uh, about what indulgences could or couldn't do. The problem with indulgences was it got um, 
linked up into um, financing church building programs. And the one that caused the major problem was financing um, St. Peter's in Rome, building St. Peter's in Rome. Um, but Luther, as a pastor, um, had come to a, a view about salvation that said uh, it was, in fact, um, irrelevant and, in fact, erroneous to um, be purchasing indulgences to take care of time in purgatory uh, because his newfound understanding of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, um, basically said uh, that that wasn't a necessary thing anymore. And he became quite upset as a pastor because he was not only a, a theologian lecturing at a university, but he was a pastor of a local congregation. And uh, he became very upset that um, his parishioners were crossing over the border into the other part of um, Saxony that was nearby to buy these indulgences um, to get time off purgatory, whereas he thought they would be much more um, wise to actually use their money to pay for food for their children and, and so on, um, rather than to buy these um, what he considered to be worthless indulgences. Uh, so there was a real pastoral uh, part to what Luther was doing when he nailed the 95 Theses to the to the church door because they were all about uh, the the trafficking in indulgences. Yeah. Of course, issues of corruption can go very deep, and yeah. maybe there'll be uh, listeners who might like to even disagree, uh, but uh, the idea of corruption going deeply to things like simony was another one of those uh, issues, the idea of selling and buying clerical offices. Uh, that was happening back in the 1500s. Yes, there was a fair bit of uh, that happening in the higher echelons, um, and, and again, the, the item that Luther was really focused against had that as a background to what was going on. Um, the, the multiplicity of church offices um, by canon law shouldn't have been allowed, uh, but the Archbishop of Mainz uh, wanted to not only be the Archbishop of Mainz, he wanted to have a couple of offices as well. Uh, to achieve that, he made a deal with uh, a group of bankers known as the Fuggers, uh, to loan him some money so that he could pay the Pope for the extra um, uh, extra office that he was after. Uh, and the Pope, in turn, gave him the opportunity to sell the indulgences so that he could then pay back the, the Fugger bankers uh, for the loan. So it was a, a, a nice little business deal going on, um, but indicative of the sort of um, depth of corruption that could be going on in the Renaissance papacy in particular. And Graham, you mentioned something really, really uh, centrally important to the Reformation when you said that Martin Luther had uh, uncovered or rediscovered. And it's mm. not as though, because we can open our Bibles today and say, well, uh, you know, it wasn't really hiding uh, this idea of salvation by grace alone and not by uh, works or yep, uh, yep. the indulgences and th those sorts of things that were going on. This salvation by grace, uh, just how powerful was that that really actually began to turn the world upside down there 500 years ago? Hmm. You know, Luther um, was educated as you would expect at that stage um, in, in traditional Catholic theology when he was coming through the university training um, he discovered for himself that um, 
the sense of assurance that one could gather, uh, obtain from that sort of teaching really wasn't uh, there for himself. And um, he was a very troubled person. And his um, vicar general, uh, in a sense, said, physician, heal thyself and send him off to become a university lecturer in the Bible. Um, so he, he then started to lecture on the Psalms uh, and, uh, and the book of Galatians. And in the process of all of that, over a couple of years, rediscovered with the, the help of St. Augustine's writings, this understanding that uh, it's all by God's grace that we are saved um, and that it's a declaration of our salvation in Christ on the basis of grace through faith. Uh, and that was a revolutionary thing in his time uh, because the the other theologians uh, from around that period of time, uh, and there were many, many schools of theology around that period of time, uh, all disagreed about the nature of justification. Um, so it wasn't as if there was a, a Catholic Church um, dogma or um, decision about exactly what that meant and how it functioned. Uh, there was tradition that they accepted. But um, Luther, in a sense, um, brought that all to a head when he started to advocate this very powerfully and was involved in a number of big debates with different people, uh, significant people in the Catholic Church at that stage. Uh, and um, many people sided with his understanding about the, the human nature, um, which he was very pessimistic about, um, the, the effect of original sin and therefore the need for it being totally of God's work to actually bring about the declaration of um, people being justified through faith by grace. When we talk about the Reformation, sometimes it's easy if you're a part of a Protestant church to think of things like this through rose-coloured glasses and all is good on one side and all is evil on the other. Mm. But there has to be a balance in there somewhere, doesn't there? There does indeed, and uh, people that were the key figures in the Reformation, people like a Martin Luther or Ulrich Zwingli, um, came to their positions of, of understanding Scripture and were tenacious in, in defending them. Uh, and that tenacity often led to uh, some fairly harsh judgments against each other, let alone against the Catholics, and, uh, and some harsh uh, interactions uh, with each other's followers. So, yeah, it wasn't all um, rose-coloured glasses stuff that we, we have to be aware of the, the issues that were there. One of, one of the classic examples, I guess, was that uh, around um, the 1529-30 period, uh, the, the Protestants, uh, both in Switzerland and in Germany, were very aware that the Catholics were starting to get together... Um, a group of people that would physically take them on um, to force them back into the Catholic Church. So they, they tried to work out if they could make a, um, a an agreement about their theology um, at a place called Marburg. And um, Luther and Zwingli and a lot of other people were all there and they had these massive confrontation uh, over just one point in the end in theology. They could agree on everything else but in the end, they couldn't agree on how Christ was present in the Lord's Supper. And so there was no agreement, and the reform groups went their own way. Zwingli would die in battle just a couple of years later against Catholic forces. Luther would go off and, and do his own thing. 
So yeah, it was it was um, high stakes conversations that went on then. And those things are still controversial today, and some will say largely unresolved. Is that a fair enough way to to talk about perhaps the gap between Catholics and Protestants even today? I mean, we're not warring with one another, but those sorts of controversies still exist? Oh, absolutely. Um, with the ecumenical movement that kicked in in the 60s and 70s in particular, maybe it started a bit earlier than that, um, Conversations between Catholics and Lutherans, Reformed and Lutherans, uh, Reformed and Catholics, you know, these conversations have been going on and on and on. Uh, but despite all the best will uh, in the world, they, they continue to find that they can't quite agree on some central doctrinal position so that there's no sense of unity. In terms of physical unity, they, they can start speaking about one another as brothers and sisters in Christ a bit more than they used to, but um, theologically and institutionally they, they remain separate. Um, yeah. And Chris from Victoria has been waiting very patiently. Hello, Chris. Welcome along. Uh, good day, Neil and uh, guest. Yeah, um, I just want to say the Catholics say sola scripture, but it also depends what scripture you use. I mean, if you say sola scripture, then you wouldn't have things like praying to the saints, praying to Mary, the Eucharist, you know, the blood and the body literally turning into Jesus, all that sort of stuff. Um, that's what I want to say, because, you know, God says in Revelation, he who adds or subtracts, and the sacrifice of Jesus is self-sufficient. And also, I just want to ask you, what do you think about Martin Luther? Would, uh, was he really anti-Semitic? Did he go mad, uh, you know, because the Catholics handed him that much? Or, or was it a setup so that um, the Catholics could cause enmity between the Jews and Protestants? There's lots of uh, things in uh, that, uh, that question, that comment. Uh, let's start with the, uh, the idea of, of Martin Luther being anti-Semitic. If you could deal with that one first, that would be great. Yeah, sure. Um, Luther was very much a man of his time. Um, and he wrote some very harsh things uh, against the Jews that uh, weren't, in my view, being set up by the Catholics. Um, but he was no different to uh, anybody else in the 16th century who had this sense of uh, opposition to the Jewish people. Um, so all he's doing, in my view, is reflecting a very common anti-Semitic view of the 16th century. Uh, and... From his point of view, he had become very frustrated um, having preached the gospel to um, numerous representatives from the Jewish community, the rabbis and so on, convinced that they should have understood the truth of this, but then rejected it. Um, so he became very frustrated uh, with them, just as he became very frustrated with the Anabaptists, who he felt did exactly the same thing and treated them exactly the same way um, as, as the Jewish folk in yeah, And Chris, you were talking about a number of differences between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, you talked about, uh, I think it was uh, sacraments and... Uh, yeah, prayers to the saints, prayers to Mary, the Eucharist, um, you know, yeah, okay. transubstantiation, all that sort of stuff. And those things remain controversial today, Graham? Oh, they do. They, they remain points of difference. Um, the, the whole... Um, Council of Trent, where the Roman Catholic Church uh, eventually um, did form formalise uh, its its um, doctrinal positions on a whole range of things, including transubstantiation, the role of tradition and scripture, 
uh, those sorts of things. So um, the Council of Trent in the 1560s is the touchstone still for most Catholic theology. Uh, it's um, based on Thomas Aquinas's um, theology, which is still very dominant. And so there are these uh, vast differences between uh, the understanding of, of Protestants and, and Catholics on some of these uh, key issues. Uh, the, Chris, I think, mentioned the, the issue about which Bible would they use. Uh, and for many centuries, the Catholic Church continued to just use want, want to use the Vulgate, which was a translation that um, people had found translation faults with, and that was part of um, where the, the Protestant Reformation grows from that they had, uh, had recognised that um, some of the early translation work uh, had misrepresented uh, particular Hebrew words uh, or, or Greek words and um, had reinforced these, um, these theologies about prayer to the saints and so on. Uh, so there's this combination of being able to uh, challenge the, the biblical text itself um, to correct it in, in light of... Um, later discoveries uh, as well that we've we've had since the reformation period um, which which gives us a different version to to work with uh, dr graham chatfield uh, when we mentioned at the start of this uh, part of our conversation uh, sometimes we look at the reformation a little bit with rose-colored glasses mm-hmm. and the idea that uh, because these were christian people who were having uh, comfortable, nice debates, that really isn't necessarily the case. And you mentioned that some of these things got so out of hand and that some of these reformers died in battle. Uh, I mentioned a couple of times that there even was a 30 years war. And I guess context-wise, when we think of the war that's been going on in Afghanistan that Australians have been part of, this is one of the longest wars in Australian history. Uh, when we talk a 30 years war, it's twice as long as what uh, the wars we're experiencing today. When you reflect on the 30-year war, what was happening around that time that really caused such antagonism, aggression, uh, violence and bloodshed? Mm. Yeah, the um, 30-year war is, is a sort of combination of three individual campaigns that we sort of stitched together and just call it the 30-year war. So 1618 to 1648 are the dates. The first um, wave, if you like, was generated by um, Catholic assertions to um, retake um, Protestant areas, particularly in Bohemia, Moravia, um, down in that area, the Czech Republic area now. And that was very much a Spanish uh, Catholic um, inspired, what would you say, campaign against Protestants to to bring them back into the fold. Uh, you you then had um, some campaigns where French Catholics, to get advantage over the Spanish, allied themselves with Lutherans and and Dutch uh, reform people to keep the Spanish occupied and weaken them. In, in campaigns, and that was very much a a political um, opportunist thing that the French were using the Protestants against the Catholics to their own advantage. And then you had the uh, the Danish and Swedish campaigns where the Lutherans from there came down to uh, try and save the the Lutheran Church that was uh, being overrun by by um, Catholic folk. 
uh, and it was uh, a, a terrible, terrible war. Um, whole areas of, of parts of Germany, present-day Germany, were virtually depopulated uh, in that in that process of the Thirty Years' War. It was it was pretty horrific. As I understand it, the southern part of Europe remained Catholic. Yep, uh, and Central Europe was really left devastated by a 30 years war. Yeah. Uh, really a dreadful thing to think about. And oftentimes when we talk about the split of Protestants from Catholics, uh, as I say, rose-coloured glasses might think that everything was nice and uh, friendly and uh, even debates. But, of course, when we talk about war, we even, I imagine, uh, take uh, you know a, a little bit of time to think deeply about how could Christian uh, brothers and sisters get to a point where things get to such a low, low point where they're actually taking up arms against one another. But this is real history we're talking about here, Graham. Yeah, and the, the essence of what it is... Um, usually re- revolves around the concept of truth. Uh, if you are absolutely convinced that there is only one truth and that you have it, uh, and the other person has something that looks very similar to it but is wrong in a couple of areas, that what they're doing is actually taking people to hell uh, if they followed that truth that you have misrepresented. And they often use the the analogy of the gangrenous limb. It's better to chop off the limb and save the whole body than to uh, allow the gangrene to spread and and infect everybody and kill them all. So that sort of analogy is often used to justify why using physical violence um, for coercion against um, spiritual positions was was actually um, utilised in that period. Uh, and uh, Lutherans would use it as much as Reform might use it, as would the Catholics would use it, as would the Anglicans would use it. Uh, all of them would use this same same basic approach, um, which is very different in, to our concept of religious toleration and freedom uh, these days. It, it was a very different period of world history. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.